were drowning in a sea of sin, going down for the last time when you called upon his name. He reached down his nail-scarred hand, and he lifted you out. So remember where you were back then, and thank him for where you are now. Give him the glory for what he's done in your heart. He took you from sin and strife and gave a new start. He took your broken life and he made you complete. So take off those crowns of glory and cast them at the Savior's feet. Do you remember when with all your heart you longed to serve him? But you didn't think that Jesus could ever use someone like you. But look how he's used your life since he brought you out. So remember where you were back then and thank him for where you are now. Give him the glory for what he's done in your heart. He took you from sin and strife and gave a new start. He took your broken life and he made you complete. So take off those crowns of glory and cast them at the Savior's feet. So take off those crowns of glory and cast them at the Savior's feet. Amen. That's a great song, isn't it? <clears throat> That's one that'll get you reflecting on things, put things in perspective for you. All right, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. We've been addressing and dealing with the Jew. We've been dealing with, uh, as a result, we've been looking at the nation of Israel as well. And so we uh, address the past. And now we want to look at their present and where we see them today. And um, we're going to look at that a little bit. We're going to focus our attention primarily in Romans chapter 11 tonight. And we'll see what we can't glean and grow, uh, grow from here. But uh, a lot of good stuff here in Romans chapter 11. So <clears throat> let's go ahead and kick off by reading just verse 1. I say then hath God cast away his people, God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. And of course, we see the Apostle Paul addressing the Romans. And he's um, uh, dealing with this issue of Israel or the Jew and 
It's a, it was an issue in that day. It's an issue in our day. And as a result, we're speaking about it even now. And so since the crucifixion of Christ, we noted and have addressed the fact that the nation of Israel has suffered quite a bit. They've suffered a lot. And their cry, His blood be upon us and our children, uh, has been literally fulfilled, as we've noted before. In Matthew 27, 25, again, they said that. They said they answered, then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Man, what, a, what an amazing, I mean, I don't know about you, but that, that's kind of scary, you know. Um, wow. To, 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 to uh, gamble the life and well-being of your children, uh, I don't know. I, I think I would have... Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe cry crucifying, but I don't know about the last part of it, you know, I don't know. But nonetheless, uh, we see that um, these people have endured horrible things. And so as we look at their, uh, you know, their past, we addressed and also noted that they'd been through quite a bit. They'd endured, endured a lot uh, through, uh, throughout Europe even. And we said that the Jews would find themselves being persecuted and banished from nation after nation over the next 1,900 years. And so we noted England and France, Germany, Spain, all of them would turn against the Jew, and uh, at some time or another they would banish them and persecute them and all of those things. Wow, what a price they have paid. And then it would be in uh, 1948, on May the 14th, that David Ben-Gurion, the head of the Jewish agency, proclaimed the establishment of the State of Israel. And then we had also President Harry S. Truman who recognized them as a new nation on that same day. Now, they weren't really a new nation, were they? Uh, they just were a restored nation. They finally got back into their land a little bit there. Uh, but, uh, hey, that's, that's okay. And so, as we start thinking about uh, these, uh, the, the Jew, as we think about Israel, and we consider this idea or we consider their present, uh, then, um, you know, we have to ask some questions. Uh, number one, have the Jews been replaced as a nation by the Gentiles and as God's people by the church? And so we're going to take a look at a few of these things as well as some others along the way, look at some scripture that will, I think, support the position that we take from the Word of God and then go from there. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to turn to a little book in the Bible called Hosea. I should have told you that after prayer. Some of you will be cheating now. <laughs> Just don't let us hear the pages rumple, you know. So let's have a quick word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather tonight. Lord, teach us something from your word. May we glean something that will enable us, Father, to become better for you. Thank you for the precious truth of your word. Thank you for the privilege of serving you and allowing us, Father, the opportunity just to be a part of your family. Now, Lord, bless this service tonight again, and may you, Father, do your work in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Hosea chapter 3, verse 4. Here we go. Let's start it off. We should do a, uh, a challenge tonight. We should have had a sword drill this evening and seen who was the first one to get to Hosea. Are you already there? No, you aren't. You're just looking at me shaking your head like you were there. Ah, somebody's pretty slick over there in the teen section. All right. <clears throat> Hosea chapter 3, verse 4. Notice what it says about uh, the children of Israel. It says, 
The children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod and without teraphim. Isn't that something? Many days. But again, I want you to note he doesn't say forever. Many days. And someone might say, well, that was fulfilled back there when they went into captivity and they came back. Well, I believe that what you're going to find in prophecy is that often prophecy is fulfilled in two stages. That there's, there's this element of like we see it once here in, in part and then we see it fulfilled completely in another. And what we find is that this passage, obviously, talking about many days, boy, it's been many days that they've been without a king. Many days without a prince, many days without a sacrifice. It's been many days without an image and many days without an ephod. And now, in 1948, they were gathered back into their land, and boy, things are moving in the right direction. And we're going to see that ultimately God's going to do something. The Bible points out that Jerusalem must be, as he says in Luke chapter 21, 24, trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Well, we're still in the midst of the times of the Gentiles. And so we're going to see that Jerusalem is going to have a lot of issues and a lot of problems up until the times of the Gentiles are completed. So the Apostle Paul now, he points out that God's not done with Israel yet. And look now, if you would, in chapter 11 of verse, uh, chapter 11 of verse, excuse me, of Romans, chapter 11 of the book of Romans, and we're going to look at verses 25 through 26. Again, the Apostle Paul writing now to the church at Rome, he's going to make it abundantly clear this is after Christ has obviously ascended and gone back to be with the Father, and now we're going to see the Apostle Paul addressing the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. These are his people, because he himself is a Jew. Notice what it says here in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. <clears throat> For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now, I don't know about you, but if it was written there in the time of Paul the Apostle, it would seem to me that this is something that's still ahead. And so obviously in this particular passage, he's letting us know right now that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. There's going to come a, par, par, a point in their history where blindness will not exist at all. Where they'll be quite aware of what's taking place and they'll be obviously in charge again, uh, large and in charge as they were uh, back in the day. And God said there's going to be a deliverer. And we're going to see that transpire. Romans chapter 11, we saw that verse 25 and 26. Now again, blindness in part has happened to Israel till the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And then they're all going to be saved. Doesn't sound to me like God's done with Israel yet. Doesn't sound like he's done with the Jew. So therefore we recognize, we understand very clearly then that 
the Jew or Israel has not been replaced by the church or by the Gentile nations. They're going to once again be restored to their proper place. They're going to ultimately be ahead or leading all nations again. And for that reason, they have been preserved. They've been kept. I mean, God could have done away with those people, but he has a purpose and a plan for them yet. And uh, he had a plan and a purpose for them a long time ago, and he does today. Look, if you would, in Amos chapter 9. Yeah, I threw another one at you, didn't I? Amos chapter 9. I mean, we're talking about some prophecy now that points to uh, Israel and their ultimate restoration. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. Notice the Bible says in Amos chapter 9, verse 11, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen. That day, meaning the day of the Lord. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and, all the, and of all the heathen, which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine and the hills shall melt, uh, sh- uh, and, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them, and I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. I don't know about you, that sounds pretty plain. Sounds to me like God's got a lot going here for Israel, that he's still got pretty big plans for them. And I don't know uh, from, my, uh, you know, from, from your perspective, but from mine, as I've studied the Bible, probably like you have, you've realized something pretty clearly. And you understand this to be true, that God doesn't lie. And if God doesn't lie, then he's still got business with Israel. Prophetically, he has made it very clear. He has proclaimed that he is going to do something supernatural and unbelievable with those people. Look in Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the chapter kicks off, of course, with the prophet being commanded to preach to a valley of dry bones, dead bones, dry bones, whichever you like to call it. He preaches and they ultimately come together, those bones. Flesh then comes upon them and eventually the winds blow, which is representative of the Spirit of God bringing life to them. And so that which was dead is now made alive. The bones that were revived represent the whole house of Israel. Both Israel and Judah combined. And, it, and it, it, it refers to and it points to them being restored and placed back into their land. 
Then, after that, the prophet in chapter 37 is instructed to take a stick. He takes a stick and he's told to write the name of Judah on it. So he has one stick that has the name of Judah on it. He's then instructed and told to take another stick and put Israel on it. So now he has two sticks, one representing Judah, one representing Israel. And then he's told to put the two sticks together in his hand. Turn, if you would, as we said to 37, look at verse 19. And he is going to illustrate now to all the future of Israel. Look what it says here in Ezekiel 37. It would have been good if I was doing all that talking, if I'd have been turning there. I'm almost there. There we go. Look at verse 19. Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks wherein thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I have taken the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all, neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. By the way, David, my servant, that, that was a while back. That's, I mean, that, that was a long time ago David was the king. So this is obviously pointing to someone else or to David or some other king that will be uh, stand in David's place that will rule and reign over all of Israel then. So therefore, he's not done with them. Watch, he goes on to say, and my servant David shall be king over them, and they, shall, uh, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them, and they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince over them. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Sounds to me like he's not done with them yet. And I'll tell you what, every time God starts thinking about Israel and the nation, he begins to think about those, those old-time uh, men of God, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He thinks about those men that he made promises to. And although the people had gone astray and although the people had failed to follow him as he intended and as he directed, the fact is, is he made some promises and he made some covenants to them and he will keep his promises. So we see here in the passage, it's quite clear that God's not done with them yet. See, some believe that Old Testament restoration prophecies like we're reading and others in the Word of God regarding the nation of Israel should be interpreted symbolically. It should just be symbolism that this represents this and this always represents this and this represents this. I think it's pretty clear when God says, let this represent this. It's pretty clear. I mean, even those sticks, I mean, it makes it pretty clear who they are and how it's working and what the picture is, and uh, he makes it pretty clear if that's what he intends. They dismiss the literal nature of the Bible too many times. A good rule of thumb is to use, uh, when you're interpreting, interpreting Scripture, here's a good rule of thumb. Take a passage literally until it is impossible to do so. I mean, take it literally till it's impossible to do so. It's funny to me how even when we start addressing and discussing the book of Revelation, how many times we like to make it symbolic. But let me ask you something. If you would have heard about all the plagues of Egypt and you had no real reference that it was historical, you might be tempted to think that some of those things also were simply symbolic. I mean, I don't know about the fact, but, but when, when Joshua prays and the sun stands still, that seems symbolic to me. Or maybe a whale that swallowed up a man for three days and three nights, that's probably symbolic. Or walls that literally fell flat, outward, not in. That's got to be symbolic, right? That's getting have possibly happened. All I'm saying is is that it's always amazing to me how we're so quick to turn to symbolism when we don't want to address the literal. And the fact is is that God says, I am not done with my people. And in order to sit there and somehow dismiss that, you have to somehow turn all the prophecies to symbolism. They can't mean what they say and they can't say what they mean. No, they have to mean something other than that. And by the way, you know what's interesting about that is that there's no way you could possibly understand what that means. You better come to me because I'm the man that's been trained. That's where that leads. And then we get into what we talked about in our class upstairs when we're talking about Baptist church history when we were dealing with the idea of, a, of, of the, 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 the uh, Nicolaitans. Where you have the ruling class, and then you have those other ones that don't rule. Where eventually you have a priest who has to tell everybody what to believe and how to believe it, and you better not even hold a Bible in your hand. Why? Because you couldn't understand it anyway, and you better let me be responsible for addressing it and sharing it and expounding it, because otherwise you'll get all messed up. It's funny that the Reformation back in the 1500s, what really lit the fire from the Dark Ages and eventually brought light to our world was the fact that eventually common people had the Bible in their hand. 
That's the real thing. The dark ages, it's always like some mystical thing. It's always some crazy thing. You know, oh, that's because of, you know, uh, philosophers and all this stuff. And none of this stuff was going on at that time. It was just such a caste system. It was a horrible situation. Can I tell you what always leads to that situation? Taking the Bible out. Do you think America's heading any other direction than the dark ages here? When we removed that book out of the schools and we took it out of our culture and we removed the truths of it and the commandments of it out of our world and we said, don't live by those. Those are just symbolic. You can't take that stuff literal. We started going back into the dark ages in our nation. And I don't know about you, but it's getting to be a darker place all the time in America. And until we replace the unbelief with truth, again, we are going to continue in that direction. It won't be till people literally are willing to open that book and hide it in their heart until finally the light will finally flash again in America. Otherwise, there is no hope for America without the Word of God. None. There's no hope for our world. Go ahead and bring emissions down and never go 1.5 Celsius over the next 50 years even if you choose. But our world is going to decay and it's going to be destroyed because of sin. It is not the heat that's going to destroy it. It's the sin that will destroy it. It's the fires of hell that will destroy it. It's amazing what we keep thinking is going to wreck and ruin our world. I went from teaching to preaching because I'm really bothered by it. It bothers me. I don't know about you, but it bothers me. That we have replaced the word of God with intellect so-called science that for some reason is a moving target today. The science is this one day and it's this the next day. Can I tell you, until we get a book in our mind, our heart, and in our homes and lives that doesn't change, a Savior that doesn't change, you will never know what is up or down or left or right. And that's where we're at. I can tell you right now, God's not done with Israel. Why? Because this book says so. God's word says so. And God doesn't lie. He don't lie. In Romans chapter 11, verse 1, we read it already. It says, hath God cast away his people? It says, God forbid. And then Paul the apostle says, for I, am, I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abram, of the tribe of Benjamin. Hath God cast away his people? God forbid. Man, you're going to ask that question? That question's going to arise, arise while I'm around? I'm, remember who I am, folks. Man, you're talking about me and mine. God ain't done with us as a people. Now, I'm glad I'm a Christian, but I'll tell you what, he ain't done with Israel yet, Paul's saying. He goes on and has answered Uh, And he answers his own question in verse 2 again. He says, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not, that the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, and so forth, so on. God hath not cast away his people. God forbid he's not going to cast them away. He hasn't cast them away. Not those who he foreknew. He says, man, listen, he, he sat there and talked with Abraham. He had a relationship with Isaac and Jacob. Our forefathers knew who this God was. And this God made some promises to them. And he's going to keep his promises. Whether you keep yours or not, he'll keep his. That's what he's saying. 
And again, Paul asks the question in verse 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 11. He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. What he's saying is that he's saying, have they fallen down so that they shall never rise again? Have they gone, hit the rock bottom? Are they never going to recover? He says, God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. What we see are two things that are revealed here from the passage. One, the Jews have fallen. Why? That the Gentiles may have an opportunity to be saved. When they fell, it opened the door to salvation to you and I. You know, we're, we're going to see here in just a few moments, we got a bunch of Gentiles at the Church of Rome who think pretty highly of themselves. And Paul's trying to put them in their place and say, wait a second, before you rail on God's people, remember where you came from. The Jews have fallen that the Gentiles may have a chance to be saved. Number two, the sight of seeing those Gentiles saved may make the Jews jealous. That was the point of the verse. There's a couple things going on again. God forbid, but rather through their false salvation is coming to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. I mean, think about the guy who breaks up with the girl, and then he sees her with another guy. The sight of that makes him jealous, and sometimes causes him to even rethink his decision, and even go as far as to try to win her back even. Well, maybe I let something good go. Man, I got rid of her, and she's already got another guy. That's what the Scripture's saying about the Jew. I mean, they fall, and all of a sudden, God turns to the Gentile, and now the Gentile's receiving and accepting, and he's saying, hopefully, it causes the Jew to be jealous. It's going to bring them to jealousy. What, what good would that do? Hopefully, it draws them back to him. Then in verse 12, he adds some things. Notice what he adds here. In Romans 11, verse 12, it says, Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them be riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? That is, how much greater blessing there will be for the world when the Jew rises up again and takes their place among the nations? I mean, it's already amazing what's taking place as a direct result of their fall. But can you only imagine, he says, how much better it will be for everybody if they again are elevated where they belong. If the fall of them brings such blessing, how much better the exaltation. Wow. Paul has heard the rumblings among the Gentile believers concerning Jews. He's heard it. Isn't it funny how, 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 how we really are? I, I, I'm not going to get ahead of myself, so let's read another scripture. Romans chapter 11. I want you to look at verse 16. Now, <clears throat> Paul the apostle is going to use two olive trees to paint a picture and place the, 
to, to help the Gentiles understand their place in the overall scheme of things. Look what he says here in Romans eleven sixteen. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, he says, and notice thou, being a wild olive tree, that's the Gentile he's talking to, were grafted in among them, the Jews, and within partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, the goodness of God, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. Isn't it interesting? He says, the goodness and severity. I've ever wondered, maybe we need to do a study on the word severity in the Bible. Think about what that means. When you think about the severity of God, what image comes to your mind? Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe? Judgment. It's interesting that he puts, behold therefore the goodness and severity. Two opposite ends of the spectrum, it seems to me. See, sometimes we lose sight of both ends. Sometimes we can't help but focus on only the good. We don't like to look at the things that are... mm. But God says... Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul the Apostle speaking to these Gentiles, and he says, you better understand something. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward these goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive trees? Who in the world takes a wild olive branch and puts it into a good one, into into a good olive tree? That's crazy. He says, you know, put a good one into a bad one to try to bring forth, the, you try to bring forth fruit. There's, this thing's all mixed up, at least, is what we're getting into. It's not right. It's unnatural what's taking place. You don't belong where you belong. You should not be where you're at, Gentiles. But you are. But you are. How much more shall these be of the natural branches be grafted into their own olive trees? Paul reproved the Gentile members of the church at Rome. Why? Because they were boasting of their independence of the Jews. We don't need them Jews. A bunch of losers. Look how they turned on Jesus. Then here they are, them Jews, running around talking about circumcision and all that stuff. Their stupid law. We got grace now. We don't need, we got grace We don't need the law. 
He says, you better watch what you're talking about. You don't just discard a Jew and you don't discard what he grew up with. You don't understand. It's, not be- it's because of him that you are where you are at at all. You better watch your mouth, sucker. You better cool it off and cool your jets now. Why? Because believing that Christianity had supplanted Judaism, they thought somehow we took their place now. God don't love them like he loves us. Man, we are free to serve God. We're so blessed. Them Jews turned their back on God. They got what they deserved. Oh, okay. He says, you better be careful. Your pride is getting in the midst of some things. You're messing up big time, boys. You know, there are people in the church today who claim that the church has supplanted Judaism and fallen heir to all the promises. They they no longer are heirs. We are. Oh, it's all symbolic, you know. Yep, it's us. It's all about the church. God's done with them Jews. They screwed it up. They messed it all up. They're a bunch of losers, but praise God for us. Really? That isn't what Paul the Apostle did. He put those Romans in their place. And he said, you better be grateful for those Jews. You better understand God is not done with them yet. And the fact is, anything, any hope you have in knowing Christ is a direct result of their fall. If it wasn't for the fact that they fell, you know what? You might be standing on the sideline hoping to get in somehow. You say, yeah, but I know my Bible, and I know God meant to save the Gentile. Yeah, but he meant to do it his way. And I guarantee you something. The Jew fell before he opened up the door to the Gentile. That's what we know, and the Bible's making that clear. How God would have performed some of those things otherwise, I don't know exactly. But what I do know is he did it the way he did. And he tells us here in the passage, you better not get arrogant. You better not become prideful. Don't you cast away the Jew. Don't you throw away his Bible. Don't you get rid of all of the influence that he's had over history. You better just recognize that he has a place in your faith today. That's all. So he's saying, don't you boast against those branches because you don't bear the fruit of the root. He said, for thou bearest not the root, but the root. You ain't the root, that's what he's saying. They are. The root bears thee, you don't bear the root. That's something, isn't it? So he says, be not high-minded, but fear. You know, there's never been a generation yet that's escaped the pride issue. The fact is that even in the early church, pride prompted the Gentile to dismiss the Jew. Because you know why? I believe everybody wants to be God's favorite. Down deep, we all want to be God's favorite. I want to be God's favorite. I don't know about you. And somebody said, well, I don't want God to like me. Really? That's crazy. That's nuts. I, I want God to go... Now, there you go. Now, some of you are going, I don't want to get too well-known with God because I don't want to end up like Job. Some of you are thinking it, weren't you? You're thinking it because you know your Bible enough to know. But I tell you what, everybody wants to be God's favorite if they're honest. I do. I mean, I've always been my parents' favorite. I just want to be my Heavenly Father's favorite. You say, did they tell you that? No, but I just know it. (laughs) 
He says, if God spare not the natural branches, take heed that he also spare not thee. Lest he also spare not thee, excuse me. So anyway, we see this. It's such, it's, to me, it's very clear in Scripture from what I can tell. I, everything it points that I read points to God's not done with them Jews yet. He is not done with Israel. So as we close, when the Jew rejected the gospel, God sent it to the Gentiles, and they believed and they were saved. God's not done with Israel, however. And the believer doesn't replace the Jew, nor does the church replace Israel. God has a plan for the Jew. And that plan is revealed in both the Old and New Testaments. The Gentiles blessed to have the privilege of being grafted into the olive tree and thus enjoying the blessings of salvation. You know, we can't afford to become high-minded. We need to stay humble and thankful, grateful for what we have. The nation fell. The Bible says the nation was lost. The Bible points to the fact that it was cast away. But none of those words suggest that there was final judgment on Israel or that it was all over for them. The amazing thing is that through Israel's fall to me, the amazing thing is that salvation came to us. I, I can't even wrap my mind around that. You know, we talk about benefiting from someone else's sorrows. Listen, every time we think about the Jew and the plight that they have endured through, the, through history, every time we think about that, we have to think, wow, that benefited me. That benefited me and mine. We used to be big in America <clears throat> about supporting the Jew in, the, the, in Israel. We were big about that. <clears throat> and listen, you know, we understand that, you know, this whole thing about the Jew first. Listen, I, I'm not trying to undermine missionaries that go out on behalf of the Jew and all that. Listen, that's not my goal. But I'm going to be frank with you. Um, I'm not going out here looking for Jews before I look for Gentiles. That happened in the early church. That was what they did. We find everybody now. We go after everyone. You don't say, we're going to go to the Jew first, and then we'll go to everyone else. We go to everybody with the gospel. That was what was given to us in the Great Commission. And early on in the church, where did they go first, like the Bible said? To the Jew first. Then to the Gentile. But it's already the Gentile now. So we go out and we reach them. Now listen, there's going to be policies that Israel might make that we as a nation can't support. Everything that God's people, including the church, come to a conclusion of doesn't always make it right. But in general, we better support God's people as a nation. That promise all the way back in Genesis is still good today. Man, I'll tell you what, I want him blessing us. I, I think I, I'm concerned because we've lost sight of, of, of the Jew today. Anti-Semitism is running rampant within our Congress. The attitude is not the same as it was just a few years back even. No, the attitude is the same. It's just now being permitted to seep out again. It was always there. It's just that we took a stand for a while there. 
Man, I tell you what, God's not done with the Jew. We better thank God for the Jew. Father, we come to you. We thank you for what you've done for us and, and just how you've allowed us to be a part of your family, how we've been grafted in as those, those branches were torn out, uh, certain branches were taken away. We have been grafted in. <clears throat> we thank you, Lord. We thank you so much for the privilege to be a part of your family and to just be eternally saved. Now, Father, bless us and help us, Lord, to have a right attitude and spirit toward your people. You address it in the scriptures. And as Gentiles, may we not be prideful or arrogant about things. May we be humble about this issue and understand where and how our salvation came to pass. Yes, you, Lord, took our place on Calvary. Father, you came through a nation. That nation rejected you. And because they rejected you, you opened up salvation to us like nobody's business. We thank you so much. We give you the glory and the honor for all things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed.